0: Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors, and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts. And I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Ricky Saunders to the podcast. For the past five years, Ricky has been the Director of Special Education for the Kalamazoo Public Schools, a large urban school district in southwest Michigan. Prior to that, she was the Special Education Coordinator for 10 years and was an administrator in Comstock and Battle Creek, Michigan. She has worked as a licensed social worker in the schools and community, and has degrees from the University of Michigan and Western Michigan University, with master's degrees in educational leadership and special education. Early in her career, Ricky worked in the nonprofit sector with the Urban League in Detroit, helping young women. Welcome, Ricky. Hey, Ricky. How are you? I'm well, Dr. Vegino. How are you? Oh, please call me Leah. <laughs> we're we're old friends. I appreciate uh, I appreciate it, but we're on first name basis here. Okay. So Wonderful. you and I have known each other for a long time and worked on a lot of uh, collaborative projects. I think knowing that kids' well being is not just you know up to one factor of their lives. So it's not just up to the healthcare piece of it, or the school piece of it, or mental health piece, you know, we're all interconnected to create, you know, really safety nets and also to help kids be the best they can be and and succeed. And, you know, I think you've been a champion for this for a long time. And your journey to the field of education is very interesting. And I wondered if you could share that.
1: Sure. So I think um, I've always... First of all, I've always had a love of children and working with young people. Um, So at the University of Michigan, I I majored in psychology um, with the intent of going into child psychology, being more specific and, and working with children in that field. The field opened and kind of led me to do some community work. So I worked at the Urban League. And it was for a program through the Kellogg Foundation, a grant through the Kellogg Foundation that was a mentor-mentee program for young women, African-American women, pairing them with educated career women um, in the community from three communities. And they would be mentors to young ladies in those three communities. And so um, I did that with the Urban League. So the nonprofit piece of it was interesting to me because you could really do grassroots work. You worked a lot with families and children. And so that was part of my engagement with possibly getting into education, but still thinking of grassroots work and community work. Got my master's initially, and then went on into schools. And so school social work is, is through special education and school psychology is through special education. So as I was working for my master's, I saw, I saw a way to marry those two pieces and work with children. And still, you know, school is community. So when you work in a school, you have your own little community that expands out to families and children. So from there, I got my master's and then got another master's in um, special education and educational leadership. So I was a vice principal, I was a special education ancillary staff member um, in Battle Creek, then came to Kalamazoo and was in Comstock as the same type of role, um, was able to be in a school. and and really get ingrained in um, the development K-5 for students and what all of those layers look like as students matriculate through elementary, how they're prepared for that secondary experience, and then all of the things that happen along the way. Um, I've also had experience um, doing therapy, substance abuse therapy. So on the other end, I would see parents of students that I had been working within school. And the connection started to be that this is a whole child situation. Because if you're, if there are any parts of the family that are struggling or sick, the whole family is sick and it affects the whole child. So it affects, of course, their progress in school and things that happen with them where they have the most consistency is where they feel the most comfortable with those struggles. So got into, you know, working through that piece of it, and then move toward um, more of an administrative role in special education. Seeing that that was really a passion of mine to work with students with special needs to make sure that they receive services and supports and specialized programming so that they had an opportunity to progress and have meaningful academic um, experiences. But also part of my job is to prepare them for post secondary life, to be productive citizens, to be part of the community, to have, have families and jobs and be part of of a larger community of the world, a global community. So that part is, is really a huge piece of what I try to do in education. Many people um, look at themselves as elementary educators, secondary educators, because that's where they live. That's where they have been educated and that's where they uh, serve a lot of our kids. But in special education, I see children pre-K until they age out, sometimes at 23, 24 years old. So I see the whole first part of their life and how we can do better in those particular areas so that they can feel like they're a whole adult when they leave our system, whether they leave at 18 or they leave at 24. So um, that's part of you know kind of um, my passion and why I continue with special education, although there are a lot of things that most educators would not think you have to deal with in special education, but the goal is to make sure that all children are created, that we create a system where they can they can thrive and be um, engaged and have meaningful experiences so i've been in Kalamazoo Public Schools was a coordinator here for 10 years in special education. I've been the director now. This is my fifth year as the director of special education. So, you know, it's been it's been a real interesting journey to get there, but I think it all led back to, you know, my passion of working with people, um, working with children, working with people that might have um, circumstances that other people don't have, but making sure that things are equitable for them. And I always joke and say, you know, I could work with, with my students, even if I worked at you know, Walmart, I would still do what I'm doing. I just wouldn't be in an office. I would still be, you know, in the community advocating or or doing what I felt was the right thing to do. So, you know, that's that's how I keep myself, you know, centered on what the work is, because there could be so many other things that distract you.
0: You bring so much to education that is probably way beyond what most of us think about how teachers and administrators function. It is really complex. And you said a couple things that I thought were really interesting, particularly when you worked with families where a parent might have substance use, and that there's a whole lot beyond the walls of the school. And we've talked on on some of my other podcast episodes about toxic stressors and you know, these challenges for families. And I remember you telling me that you have gone out to some of our homeless shelters, our mission, mm-hmm. to find kids so that the bus could pick them up, or kids who were embarrassed to be picked up on the bus at a homeless shelter. And so there's this whole trauma informed piece that I don't think most of us understand that the school takes on responsibility for. It big part of that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, what I've said before is that, you know, we have had to kind of change our thinking about what school is. We're a public institution, but we are a triage. We serve everyone who comes through our door. We can't turn anyone away due to insurance or due to, you know, you don't have your ID or, you, you know, those are the kinds of things. There are lots of systems that have You know, still rules, public systems that have rules, but we take everyone. So when you take everyone, that means you have to be able to understand clearly the needs of everyone. So, you know, we have families who we talk about trauma, and sometimes people may look at trauma as an event or something that has triggered something in your life that has caused you to respond in a particular way. Many of our families live in trauma. So it's, it's a trauma life it is not that happened i had a you know a house fire and lost all of my you know belongings and it's traumatic but we moved on this is trauma daily okay so that's different because once you have certain circumstances that are part of your daily life then you become almost immune to how deeply it affects you because you're just used to living in the trauma So if you're homeless, some people say I was homeless because I lost my job and I got down, you know, and and really struggled. But now here I am. I bounced back. We have families that are homeless. They they are consistently homeless. So they may be at the gospel mission. They may be at a hotel. There's an area over on the east side by Arcadia Creek where I have gone, where it looks like there. If you ride past there in Kalamazoo, there are lots of tents set up. People are living there with children. So that's traumatic. That's not something that we'll be here for a week. These are people that are there. This is a long-term situation for them. So-
0: um, Hard to think about doing homework. Exactly. When you're living um, kind of in that circumstance.
1: Yeah. And the consistency we had, at least for some of those families was school. Um, And when you remove that due to the closure, then you have a crater-like hole In a family or a child or a system, a system that, you know, you get your food, you get clothing, you get socialization, you get love and empathy, you get consistency. You know, the building is going to be there every day. You know, that teacher or that particular secretary is going to be sitting there every day. Students in developmental phases of their life need consistency and structure. They have to have it. Um, Their brains need it. In order to thrive, so when you don't know what's going to happen from day to day, that really is um, something that developmentally our brains are not able to truly understand when we're growing through our um, through our elementary, secondary years. So we've looked at that, and quite frankly, we have quite a few of those circumstances where, when one traumatic thing happens, another thing happens, and then another thing happens. So. That's something that to really be aware of when we're working with families, because you think that you fixed it or solved it or given them one particular um, solution to an issue, and then we're right back with something else. Um, so they're living in trauma.
0: Yeah, it's like continuous chaos. And I think for some families, it feels normal. And it's hard to recognize that mm-hmm. it's impacting the kids because That's it's like, like, oh, they're fine. And because that is their day-to-day existence and they may not really know, I I don't know that, I think those families still aspire to quote-unquote normal life, but they may never have had that. And a lot of those families, the parents grew up in similar chaotic circumstances and it just perpetuates. And I, I, you know, the other thing is the schools, those kids are at school many hours a day. I mean, you may spend more time with them than anyone else. And, you know, we're talking about one teacher and, you know, 20 plus students. And to try and address, you know, this goes way beyond reading and writing. Right. Um, You're trying to provide that love and stability. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because especially with toxic stress, we know that stable, nurturing relationships Kids and a teacher might be that person, mm-hmm. but I also think about a teacher who might get stretched pretty thin when you have lots of children in need. Absolutely, and I, and I think it's easy, you know, a lot of families are coming to us because the kids are unwinding at school. I mean, their behaviors are a mess, and you know, we know that trauma affects kids adversely, and oftentimes it looks like bad behavior, mm-hmm. and it's easy to vilify the school and just say, well, if that teacher did X, Y, and Z, or if they had, you know, some other plan in place. And they may need those supports, but the idea that it's, one, the school's fault, and two, all your responsibility. And I don't know that the pediatricians on the other end always understand that, I, you know, I'll be honest, I really didn't understand all the ins and outs. I'm not sure I still do, but, mm-hmm. you know, 504 is IEPs, RTI, and mm-hmm. what all those letters mean, FERPA. And you and I have gotten to know each other over the years, and I've been able to ask you a whole lot of questions. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, special education and that interface with the medical community. Sure.
1: Sure. So I'll start with identification. So um, a lot, I think a lot of confusion comes from the laws that guide schools and then other areas that um, may be affected that don't necessarily determine decisions that are made in schools. So for instance, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is the law that guides 504 plans. That law is a law that says that if you have a disability that you know affects you know your vision, hearing, you know um, physical movement, or any life um, kind of activity, then you may be a person that would qualify for an accommodation plan under five hundred four. So that could be um, someone who has diabetes and possibly needs to be able to um, have insulin checks and they need a plan to make sure that say a school has a schedule for those kinds of things. It alerts you to let you know there's a medical issue, or it could be a child that has um, attention deficit disorder and they need accommodations in the classroom to make sure that they can be at their optimum learning capacity. 504 um, disability areas can be temporary or they can be permanent. So, for instance, I had a son who played, my son when he was in high school, played football towards meniscus. He needed to be on crutches. I could have said, well, for the time that he's on crutches, he needs to have this plan so that he can get a lift bus and that he can you know, go early from class and that he can move back and forth. Once his knee is repaired, he's not going to need those accommodations. He's still a child that can learn in a regular classroom just as a child with diabetes or a child with ADHD without any specialized support. So that teacher with the 20 students, that general education teacher, is responsible to make sure that the accommodation of, oh, John has to leave to get his insulin checked. I have a schedule. I need to allow him to do that. Or my student with ADHD, I need to make sure that I prioritize and and keep him at this particular seat so that he can focus on me and check in with him. Or, oh, I need to make sure that, you know, Stephen can leave early because he's on crutches. He needs to use the elevator. Those are accommodations that that general education teacher can provide that those students can have. But it doesn't doesn't significantly affect their ability to progress in a general education setting. So that could be 504. Um, accommodations. And those can be from a physician or they can be something that um, the school provides. Students that qualify for specialized services through an IEP are students that have disabilities that do not Go away. Those are not disabilities. These are lifelong disabilities. So, if you are born with Down syndrome, for instance, you may be health impaired, or maybe you're considered cognitively impaired. That's not something that is temporary. That's that's something that's permanent. And so, you may qualify for an IEP, an Individualized Educational Plan, and that's covered through IDEA. But children who qualify for IEPs also, the the school has to show data to say that without this plan and specialized services, the student is is going to be significantly not able to progress in the general education setting. And there are sets of rules that we have to follow. So I think the biggest hang up that people see or the biggest confusion it may be is that behavior is a huge issue in the country, not just here, but all over. And behavior could be It could be something that children have dealt with. It could be something that's brought on by trauma, by experiences, but it's not cut and dry. So many people think that if you have behaviors where you cannot, um, you know, have success in school, that you have a disability. That, that's kind of like, oh, that you're, you're having issues in school, you need a special education evaluation or you need a plan. Many behaviors, um, we're required by law through RTI to determine if that behavior is significant enough to where you need a specialized plan and you are disabled versus you are socially maladjusted or you have some trauma or you have some experiences that if you get the right support, you can progress without an eligibility label.
0: And would that be RTI? Can you explain what the, those letters mean?
1: Sure. RTI or response to an intervention. We are legally required to provide interventions for children academically and social emotionally with fidelity and determine progress before we move to a special education evaluation. Why? Because we have huge and have seen huge disparity in when we identify certain children. We can't eyeball a student and say, oh, I know that they have this or I know that they have that. We That is not legal and it's not appropriate. Now, a lot of people think they can look at kids and say, I think he has autism. I think I know for sure teachers have done that for years because they're educators. They see a lot of kids and they know when a student is struggling in a particular area. But we have the burden of proof through you know, refined assessments and tools to make sure that if we say a child is eligible and has a disability, we have to make sure that that is um, used with data and um, fidelity.
0: And I think a case in point is autism. So, and this happens all the time and it took me so long to figure it out that I may see a child with autism, particularly high functioning autism, and -hmm. the child has lots of social problems because that's one of the core features, Mm -hmm. and the family and the physician are thinking the child should qualify for an IEP for autism services, but what we don't understand is the autism has to impact their education so that they qualify for those services. So social, I mean, they might academically be very bright. Mm-hmm. but the social piece gets in the way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that has been really yeah. <laughs> confusing.
1: So we have um, we have scales that we use to identify autism. And we actually, our school district has two teams because we want to make sure that we identify students appropriately, especially with autism, because um, we have state guidelines and state mandates that say, over-identification of children in any eligibility area is an issue. So um, we have had over-identification of white males and autism in our district um, in the past, meaning it's disproportionate to all the other subgroups. So why would it be that these children qualify more so than this other subgroup? So that's part of, of kind of the intricacy for autism. But when we talk about students with autism, we talk about significant impact on the educational environment. So socially, when when you may see a student come into your setting um, for 15, 20 minutes, clearly um, they may look as if that there are some social um, insecurity issues, some social awkwardness, and they're not able to present as a quote-unquote normal. 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old. What we have to do is go through indicators, observing them in multiple settings over time to determine are they not able to function in school significantly? So are they not able to do what most of the other students are doing with ease or, or without um, issue? Are they able to keep up with the pace of the class? Are they able to respond socially to their peers um, are they able to follow um, directions and determine, you know, if, if things are um, appropriate or not? Can they make appropriate choices? And that goes with a lot of disability areas. And we collect that information over time. And most of the time, if students are able to progress academically and we see them in the social setting in school, we take the parents response. And any other community response, we determine do they need specialized services? Because we do have children that just work on socialization. But there are some pieces of, of that particular disability where it's part of the disability. And we allow that to be part of the disability without looking to fix it. It may be part of a child with autism which is a long term disability but if it doesn't negatively impact their you know their experiences and their peer relationships and and their school experience then that's not something that we would necessarily say well you need help with this you may not other people around you may need to adjust but you don't have to be you know specialized in that that's just part of your disability part of who you are as a person and it doesn't negatively impact you um, or those around you.
0: So it sounds like there are lots of levels between these response to intervention 504s and IEPs that like the social piece that the school might work with a child on socialization without necessarily having an IEP and I oh, think yeah. and oh, I yeah. think physicians get hung up on your child needs an IEP and they may well need that. But I think probably where we get frustrated is we are used to fixing things. Mm -hmm. And if I can't fix it, maybe you can. And if I just tell the parent, well, they need an IEP. Now I do know that if we are concerned, for example, a learning disability that the, the child may need to be assessed and have some psychological testing that the schools can provide for free, which is a huge thing because psych testing is really expensive. Many insurances don't cover it. For example, a lot of kids with Medicaid, you know, private psychologists don't provide that testing. So we're looking to the schools, Mm -hmm. but that can also be a huge burden. And I think we have to be, even if those kids need that, we have to be mindful. Right. About what the resources are, and you know, of course, we're we're working with a kid individually, one on one. You're working with a whole school of children. Yeah. You know, as a teacher, you you know, one to twenty. As an administrator, now I don't know how many th- how many hundreds of kids are in the Kalamazoo Public Schools.
1: Almost fourteen thousand.
0: Yeah. So you're you know, it's these. Steps that one on one, and we just have to be mindful when you have fourteen thousand students to mm-hmm. consider, right? And and every school district looks different. There may be some very affluent school systems that have a lot more resources, may have kids that aren't coming from such distressed backgrounds. Um, you know, urban schools. I mean, I, I think. You know, the difference between a Detroit public school and a wealthy suburb of Detroit, very different, and the funding's different, the needs are different, and I, I, I do think we have to support our school administrators and educators and try and understand this, but it's complicated.
1: Yeah, I think uh, um, one of the misconceptions that you know I've heard parents say, and even people in the community regarding you know um, when we move forward with certain assessments or or to or or discuss not to is that it's money. We have to deal with the resources. We have to deal with if if we are talking about a student with a disability, we are obligated to um, find that child or child. You know, we call it child find and determine if the student has a disability or not. My job as a director. And especially an African American woman is to make sure that every child in this district that has a disability is truly eligible for services. The whole goal is to work myself out of a job. We want to make sure that every child gets what they need in a setting without having a label or being eligible That is that that it, we're far from that. We are a long ways from that. but there are other states that don't have eligibility labels you if you need. Additional support, and you have specialized support, that's just what you need. And you get what you need, and you don't have to be earmarked um, for that. The other piece is that because there are so many circumstances with my children in KPS, I have to really push hard to make sure that we're saying, is this environmental or is this eligibility? Because if that's the case, we will have a huge, you know, just disparity amongst who is eligible for services and who isn't. One of the biggest, the hugest things when we talk about disproportionate um, eligibility is that for years and years and years, African-American males were being um, identified as having emotional impairment issues. And our state um, office of special education would come to districts and say, why is it so disproportionate to every other group, race and ethnicity in your district? So we have to really take a look at how are we looking at students' eligibility of different races and cultures? Why is it that we have more white males who are identified with autism than any other race or culture? What is that about? It it begs the question for us to take a look at that. We have the same assessment tools that have been approved by our state and department and you know they've been um, validated by companies, Pearson and other places we use the same tools. Why is that? And if we have pretty much the same percentage of students in each race in the district so we're pretty even when it comes to African American and Caucasian which is our other large you know those are the two largest um, um, race and ethnicity groups in the district. We have to take a look at that, and we have to take a look at, is that eligibility related or is it bias related?
0: Well, and that brings us to another topic that you and I had, I mean, that's a perfect segue about racism and equity. And, you know, there are certainly some discussion nationally about children of color being more likely to be expelled or identified as, you know quote unquote, bad kids. And, you know, then that, of course, spills on to the community. And I think there's this overlay of, you know, what's been happening in the country with the Black Lives Matter movement and how that's impacting children of color and their education. Can you speak to that a little bit? I mean, I know that's a huge conversation.
1: Um, So I'll start with our community. And I'll start with the kids in our community. So the children in our community, um, you know, and I think we've talked about this before. Um, it, you know, there are a lot of people that live in our community that come here and think we're pretty diverse. We're a diverse community. But quite frankly, we're we are only diverse when we're in school. <laughs> That's where all the children come together. Um, when we go to our homes and lives, it's pretty separate. Um, and so when you consider... That your community and the life that you live outside of school um, in the larger world, there are huge um, disparity issues, there are huge discrimination and racial issues. We in the district, my coworker and I created a cultural relevant training um, about six years ago to have the school staff, who are 98% white women, to reflect on cultural awareness and culturally biased circumstances that you may not understand that you have. For our children, doing that was a step in the, in the way of giving them a voice, questioning, giving them a voice of understanding, giving them a voice of there's more to why circumstances happen to me than just my mom and my dad or my grandmother and aunt. When I see things happen in my community and in the world, how does this affect me? The movement that we see is just, the, it's just been bubbling under the surface. But, but we have shared over several years with our staff different incidents and ideas and circumstances that we've encouraged staff, use this as a talking point for your students. This is empowerment to have discussion about race. We're an educational institution. For us not to talk about what's happening now, this is current history. This is not past history. These are current events that are happening and they're happening to children and happening to people that look like them. And so we've tried to push the envelope of out of your comfort zone and say, talking about this gives voice to it and can be empowering to kids having discussion. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to take it, but you can have a discussion and give a space for children to discuss. And there's some uncomfortability with that. Um, there's some resistance to that. There was there, there is resistance to that and having the conversation because you don't know where it's going to go. But we have a responsibility to have that conversation. And movements that are happening now um, are things kids are talking about. You want to guide the conversation so that it can be meaningful. Um, you can't ignore it. To do that would be irresponsible. But and, to give kids a space to talk is what we're supposed to do as educators.
0: Well, and I think unfortunately this has become really politicized almost like it's an all or none. If you are on one side of the, or the other, you know, it's either you support law enforcement or you support people of color and that somehow those are mutually exclusive. And, you know, we know in Kalamazoo that it's not perfect by any means. I mean, we had protests. um, We had some things that got difficult And, you know, we have a responsibility to address it and talk about it. It is uncomfortable. Um, It is uncomfortable to know sometimes the right words. And, you know, I've struggled with that, too. It's, you know, as a a white woman, actually, I consider myself sort of other because I have such a multi-ethnic background. But, you know, in the world, I think I've always been seen as or felt that I was looked at as a white woman. But that, you know, using language like, I don't want to say something to offend. And, you know, I think one of the things is just asking people, how is this for you? Mm -hmm. What's your experience? Because I may make assumptions about what it is like or ignore it, which is worse. Right.
1: What I've done um, for kids, and I have um, sons, so I can speak to what, what we do and what we've done for years in my house. I always ask the question of what do you know for sure? And what do you think? Some of the questions and some of the discussions I had this spring with young people, because when we were closed, we still did food distribution to sites. So that gave me an opportunity to go and see kids um, and talk to them a little bit about what was going on. And so I said, What what do you, you know, what what do you think about what's going on? What do you know for sure? So the know for sure, I challenged them on the police piece. I said, the officers that we know that interact with us, we know. I said, so be clear, you know, that some of us have very good r- rapport with our law enforcement. What we don't want to do, I said, and what I don't want to do is what you accuse other people of us saying all, but we have to be real about a system um, that is in place and that exists, but be clear about the, what you know for sure. So you can stand on that, but, but look around and be, you know, aware of things are larger than Kalamazoo, larger than the neighborhood you live in. And you're going to have to understand that. So those are the things that I say to, to, to young people when we're talking and let them just talk, because again, it's empowering to be able to, to look at current events and speak. Um, and that goes for any child. Um, it doesn't have to be a child of color. You have to have a safe place, to have a conversation and to, to debate and to talk about things. Um, and I, that's what I think, you know, that that's where we were going with our staff to try to look at this situation before the closure is that you have to be that educational safe space. We provide all these things for our kids. We can't walk around and act like nothing is going on in the world. We have a responsibility to give it a voice um, in an appropriate way. So it's, 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 it's uncomfortable, it's difficult, but it's happening. Um, And and years from now, this will be a time in history where people will look back and say, you know, what did you do? How did you, you know, um, have a conversation? How did you make, you know, a child or a young person be aware of their, you know, um, standing in this world? That's our goal as educators is to to let them be lifelong learners. Um, And so ignoring what's happening is 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 just not what we can do. Um, So. You know, it's one of those situations, it's a moment in history that, um, you know, unfortunately we were out of school most of the time, but teachers that were um, learning remotely found some really cool ways to have discussions with kids and were pleasantly surprised and really excited about their engagement in it.
0: And I wonder, because, I mean, I think about this for myself, Um, for example, in our practice, I we have some... Uh, folks from physicians that are health providers that are from other cultures. Um, we don't have an African-American physician in our practice. However, we take care of lots of families and children who are African-American or children that are uh, children of undocumented um, uh, folks mm-hmm. and and may speak other languages. We have a large um, Arabic population because of the students that come to our university. Mm -hmm. So we have all these factors and I was thinking in particular about the talk, the talk that black families have to have with their children about safety if you are stopped by the police. And is that something pediatricians should ask families about? I mean, how do we talk about and be aware of that Mm Because it's it's not my experience. I would never in a million years have had that conversation with my daughters. Right. It just wouldn't have occurred to me that it was necessary. Right.
1: I think um, for sure, I think as a provider and as a community agency, it's important to recognize if you know, when you know better, you do better. So if you know, you know, the talk is what, like I said, I had um, a house full of young men when the closure happened because they were out of school, they were out of college. Um, And so, you know, they all know what they're supposed to do if they encounter anything that might be, um, you know, law enforcement wise. Um, But they were asking the why, why do I have to do that? Why, you know, And I let them talk that through. But um, it can be a cause of anxiety and stress for families. It can be a perceived anxiety and stress for families. Many families don't know how to articulate that. But it, it can be a real it can be real strain and stressor, especially if you live in neighborhoods where you see police presence a lot um, and you know that that's going to be a regular daily occurrence. That is something that families have to deal with. And I think that it has been heightened with some of the things that we social media and what we see and we take in visually. Um, it's it's it leaves an image, it leaves some 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 you know residue of. Could that be me? Would that be me? What do I need to say as a parent? Because when you and this is this is something that all parents can um, identify with. When your child leaves your house, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, your 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 hope is that they come back safely. Any horrible thing can happen to them. But the extra layer is that if they are somewhere where someone you assume is supposed to be to protect them, that they may or may not be safe. Based on a choice that they make, that's a whole nother level of anxiety for parents and stressor for parents. I know for myself, when my son came home, he couldn't. You know, I said, "You, you know, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> you you know, you just stay. We'll, we'll have stuff over here. You guys just because of COVID and because of you know, you know, they young, twenty year old. They're ready to. You know, I'm like, you're not ready to do anything. You're gonna order pizza and you're gonna be right here because I had that level of, you know, stressor. Like I know. You know what to do, but I can't control what happens when you're gone. Um, That feeling of not being in control or not being able to protect your children when they're not in your way. That's a very real feeling for a lot of families, a lot of families of color, too. I know a lot of families, period. But that's just another level of concern that many of us go through when we have our children or loved ones traveling or or not, you know, um, um, moving about, you know, with their lives. You always have to think, just be careful you know, just be careful. So um, that is something that I think, you know, and and, and I appreciate when people understand that, because many times, that's not something that people can understand. And they think, if they can't understand it, it doesn't exist. It's not real.
0: Well, and it's not my experience. I mean, exactly. I haven't been looked at suspicious, suspiciously in a store. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I just haven't had that happen to me. But I think as a pediatrician, you know, I struggle with how do I do this in a way that's respectful and not make assumptions. I have asked some kids, you know, I, you know, just uh, for example, saying to them, you know, there's been a lot on TV and the news about racial unrest and Black Lives Matter. How's that been for you? How's that been for your family? And some kids have said, you know, it's not that big a deal for them, and other kids have said it's been really difficult, and I don't know you Know your suggestions or recommendations again to pediatricians. Should we be asking parents, Do you feel that your children are safe in this community?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I noticed that's a new question that, um, when I've gone into the doctors, they'll say, Are you safe at home? So I'm thinking, Yeah, thanks for asking, but but that's probably generated from you know other data that you have. You need to ask the question.
0: Well, and Um, some of that has come from. Before, I think this has really come to the fore, people have asked that. I mean, that's been required of us to ask, do you feel it's safe at home? Thinking about things like domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Sure. But I don't think we've thought of it. Not only do you feel safe at home, do you feel safe in this community Mm -hmm. is a different question. And I I don't think we were taking that other into account because it's not on our radar Mm -hmm. if we're not in your shoes. Right.
1: Right. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I thought about, as you mentioned, is that you can identify with, you know, um, or at least understand someone who may be in a domestic situation. You can ask the question with sincerity. I think physicians can ask the same question of do you feel safe in your community? with that, you know, is everything going OK for you with the same sincerity without understanding what that means? Because I know exactly what they're asking me when they ask me that question. And it's because they want to make sure that I have a safe environment, and that if I don't, here's someone that I can share that with, I and mean, then I'm assuming that would trigger some other supports. Same with this situation with kids. Um, I think some of our our students, you know, don't know what they don't know, and for them, over the last five or six years, this has become normalized.
0: Do you think that it is appropriate to say to parents and kids, you know, I know in some families' homes you've had to talk about safety with law enforcement. Is that something you've had to worry about or talk about in your family?
1: I do, I do. I think it's being appropriate. I think it's being um, aware of what's going on. And I think that sometimes families need a place where they feel that you know, doctor's office is not, it's, it's kind of a foreign place. You go there, you have to do what you have to do. You try to put your best foot forward. Um, but if it creates a different space for families, that they feel that there's another layer in the community that understands there are other issues going on. I think that would make them feel, I know how I would feel. I would feel way more, um, uh, a sense of, 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 you know, appreciation, um, and acknowledgement that I'm here for one thing, but I appreciate you understanding that there are other things that might be going on. And, um, it would give me some time to reflect, you know, like I need to really, Maybe I need to be checking in on people and finding out what's, you know, and like I said, a lot of us, I mean, that's the conversation that a lot of us are having right now. But, you know, amongst some sometimes in smaller groups, not, um, you know, over a diverse group of people. So it would be I think it's totally appropriate and totally timely to to do that and caring for all of your patients and their needs um, is something that physicians do you know, effortlessly, but this is a
0: whole nother layer. Oh, for sure. And I, it has become a very focal point of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And in fact, there was a resolution where the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a statement apologizing because early the AAP didn't allow African-American physicians to be part of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And You know, this was a a looking inward and saying this was wrong and we have to make amends and now we have to pay attention to this and be very intentional so that we're focusing on, you know, at our chapter levels, what are you doing? How are you um, becoming more educated? And um, we do have a diversity and equity and inclusion champion for our district, which is Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, and Ontario um, from Michigan. And so we're going to talk with her, I'm going to talk with her just about this sort of what the work looks like in our, in our community, our pediatric community. So I, I do great. think it's important that we ask these questions. I, you know, we ask lots of nosy questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I ask people, are you thinking about killing yourself?
1: Hey.
0: <laughs> and we ask people who have had babies, you know, are you, you know, crying all the time? Do you feel safe? Are you using substances? I mean, these are really personal questions. So for us to normalize, for us to consider, is racism impacting you? Right. And maybe that that just needs to be part of our language. And it feels Mm. awkward that somehow Mm. if I bring it up, that I'm going to make you uncomfortable. Right. Like, is it... Do you want to hear me say that? Is that okay? You know?
1: Yeah. You know, I think that, um, you know, the way that you mentioned, you know, safety and community, everybody wants to feel safe and secure. Um, And given the current climate, there are lots of people that don't feel that way, whether it's real or perceived in their own experience. But it certainly is a feeling that a lot of us can can attribute to, can can understand if it's not for us, it's for a family member or for, you know, a a child. So, yeah, I think along with all of the other stressors that are going on, this is another layer for people. And it is totally appropriate to figure out for them, you know, just if they're in your presence, you know, is there any Portion of that that might be, you might feel unsafe about or, or struggling about or, or stressed about. I think it's, it's totally timely, totally appropriate. Um, and, you know, again, like you said, you ask a lot of questions. People put a lot of faith and trust in the medical field. Um, they they have relationships with doctors. They will lead, you know, they stay with the same position because they believe that person has their best interests at heart. And so we talked earlier about the whole child. This is still part of the whole child checking in, my coworker and I say a lot uh, when we look at what's going on, but what about the children? Mm -hmm. But what about the children? And so, and that means all of the children, whole child, social, emotional, physical, spiritual, all of those things that make up a child, what outside of everything that's going on, what about the children?
0: And I think the, you know, pediatricians, I mean, that that's what we do. So Mm -hmm. You know, we are collaborators, and I think there's lots of room for us to join forces because we see kids in different places, but we're partners in this, not adversaries. Right. About like, well, the school's not doing their job, or your doctor needs to prescribe. I mean, there is just way more complicated, but um, as you and I know... It's also more fun. I mean, I've just really enjoyed working with the schools and with our community mental health and actually having all of us at the table was really helpful. I mean, certainly for me, I mean, I'm just being selfish. It was, you know, getting to know you has, I think, made me a better physician. I certainly hope so. If I haven't, it's not because I, you know, the information was there, and I hope that I incorporate it. But you know, I can always be better, and we um, all
1: can. Sure, absolutely.
0: And I think we we need to to consider all the things that might be impacting kids, and we're not being um, nosy to ask, and right. that it's being okay. In-
1: it's totally appropriate to, to, I think, because, you know, we have students, I think we, we talked about children that um, have anxiety, school phobia anxiety, get stomach aches if they come to school. Because, you know, maybe there's pressure at school. Maybe there may be a student there that they don't like. Well, you know, I know of families who, you know, have the same anxiety when they go to the store or walk down the street. And not because of the people in their community, but because of maybe what they may encounter. Um, so stomach aches and headaches and those kinds of things and stress and all of those things that we talked about with other children that, that develop these things are now developing because of images that they see and, um, information that they take in on social media. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's stirring the same types of things that you have seen with children who have other anxiety pieces. And so I'm starting to see that, too.
0: Well, and I think if you're a person of color, particularly Black, there are things that you have to think about on a daily basis everywhere you go that others of us don't ever think about. And we have to kind of go into this eyes wide open that my experience is not yours I mean, there may be certainly a lot of things that we share common experiences as women, for example, right. professional women in particular, but there's a whole nother layer that we just haven't always thought about. And, it, you know, it's not my problem, you know, kind of thing, you know, right. because I haven't had to think, I, it, it hasn't been on our radar and right. it, we can't not have it on our radar anymore. Right. When right. it's been brought to our attention, we can't just look aside because it impacts kids and, and their parents. Yes. I mean, we have to remember parents in all of this. I mean, if parents are afraid and don't feel safe, their kids are not going to feel safe. Right. Those kids are going to feel anxious. So yep. we well, manifest
1: in different ways, too.
0: Absolutely. And you've, I mean, you've left me with lots to think about. And, uh, you know, I, I like, and it's helpful for me to hear, yes, I want to be asked these questions. I want you to ask me if I'm okay. I mean, that's the bottom line. Are, right. are you okay? Are you safe? Is there anything I can do to support right. you? Is it impacting your life in ways that I can be helpful? And if nothing else, I can be empathetic and caring.
1: Right. And, and just that, asking the question for some people is enough.
0: Just, well, just I think knowing it,
1: that you are you cognizant that, sure. that this is something that you may not experience, but definitely something that I am struggling with, wrangling with, trying to ignore, trying not to watch anymore, trying to explain it to my children, trying to go to the store. I mean, all those things that, you know, we have to do to live and move in this world, if you're a person of color. But
0: it validates. It validates. I, I remember having a conversation with one of my young Hispanic families and a teenager and you know, we had never talked about it. I didn't know if her parents were documented or undocumented, but I, I suspected that they were not. And I asked her, is this something you worry about? And she started crying and just said, I mean, you know, it was at the time, well, about four years ago when, you know, ICE was coming to schools and, you know, she was afraid and I could easily have overlooked that because I might just not, it, it wasn't on my radar. And For whatever reasons, I'd known them for a long time. And, you know, I think because it was so prominent in the news at the Mm -hmm. time. And, you know, it was eye-opening for me. How is that for a child every day to wonder if your parents are going to be taken away? Right. And, you know, when we have circumstances in our country where we have 545 children who don't know where their parents are and their parents don't know where they are.
1: It's it's hard for me to even...
0: How do you wrap your head around that? I mean, the AAP has called that government sanctioned child abuse. And I mean, and it's, it's, just, it, it's horrifying. It is, but
1: you talk about trauma.
0: Yeah. And um, and that's not going to go away. Those children are going to carry that with them forever that fear yeah. of where and their is parents, my parent?
1: And yeah. Their parents, wherever they are, can you imagine the pain of
0: that? I heard, a, I heard a, a news person said, you know, as a parent, you know, the terror when you can't find your kid for two minutes in the grocery store and wonder, did somebody take them? And the reality of somebody did take these kids, parents, and these children away from each other. So, yeah, there's lots of, lots of things going on that are pretty scary. And, um, you know, between fires and pestilence and floods and political turmoil. And
1: mosquitoes and coronavirus. Exactly.
0: (laughs) You know, we're all, and I think there is kind of a low level dread. Yeah, you know about are things going to be an uncertainty, and I've certainly yeah. seen during COVID a lot of kids struggling with, you know, when yeah. is this all going to be okay, and, you know, I think we just day to day, right? Right, and, right, right. And I think that there has to be a certain level of we're all in this together. Right. Um, we have to care and love each other, regardless of what we look like, how right. we talk, what language we speak, what our disabilities are, and, right. and the schools ha- have to bear that. I mean, the right. schools... These children come to school and spend lots of time in school, and you know, physicians, yeah. pediatricians, and school educators, administrators I mean, we're partners.
1: We, yeah, we certainly are, especially now. We're going to be as we move through this and, and move more into um, hopefully in the near future, post pandemic, um, whatever that looks like. There is going to be a time where you know, we're going to have to reflect on what this did to. Our students, our children, and, and to our adults. Quite frankly, sure. um, how do you repair some of those things? Like you said, we're all in it together, so this is a great opportunity to, you know, work and collaborate together because we're all experiencing the same thing. But um, you know, there are other things layered on top of that 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 some families are experiencing. So that's that's the that's the part that's where the real work is going to be. Getting through it is like you know you're crawling, but once you can stand up and you feel like you can walk there's going to be some stuff that, you know, it's going to be sinking sand that you're like, oh, yeah, that. Oh, yeah, this. Wow. You know, this took a toll, more of a toll on me than I realized. So um, we have to be mindful of that, too, you know, when we prepare for the next phase of whatever life is going to be. um, And we have to be partners in that.
0: And I think we together, we have to provide safe havens for kids. And it's not always perfect. Of course, you know, when a child comes to our office and has to get a vaccine, that does not feel safe. <laughs> if a you. child goes to school and has, you know, a bullying, that Ooh. doesn't feel safe. Yeah. But our goal and overarching vision and mission has to be the school is a safe haven for children. Um, the pediatrician is a safe haven for children and yes. that we support our parents and the message to them is we are here because we care about your kids.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the only reason why we're here.
0: And uh-huh. and we're partners in that. Yes, so. we have a common
1: denominator.
0: Yes, I think that is an excellent place to wrap up. And I so appreciate your time Thank and you your so insights. Yeah. And I have been so fortunate to have crossed paths with you.
1: Me as well. Thank oh. you so much. I appreciate you. it. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I want to thank Ricky Saunders for spending some time with us today and talking about our children's emotional and behavioral health needs from the perspective of the schools. And it's really important that we partner with the schools because that's where kids spend a lot of their time. One of the things that really struck me that Ricky said was that the public school's mission is to provide services for all kids and that they don't turn anyone away even based on the needs or difficulties that they may experience. Special education is really a broad range of services, and the first being that of RTI or response to intervention, which may be put in place by a classroom teacher. A 504 plan is an accommodation plan, and that's based on a medical diagnosis, for example, diabetes, an injury, ADHD. These may be short-term or long-term and depends on what the diagnosis is before those are put in place. An IEP, or an Individualized Education Plan, is a special education plan that is based usually on a disability that is lifelong and impacts education. This gets confusing because sometimes we've diagnosed a child, for example, with autism But because they're meeting their educational needs in the school, they may not meet the criteria for autism-impaired support. So that gets a little confusing, I think, for physicians and parents. So an IEP is determined after a psychologist has evaluated the child and after some observations in the classroom. We talked a long time about chronic trauma versus acute trauma, and how many children in school experience chronic trauma. And then you throw COVID in the mix, and the disparities become more evident. School is a safe haven for a lot of kids. It may be where they get their food and have stable relationships. And because they're not able to attend school in many situations, they're just not always getting their needs met. But the schools are bending over backwards trying to figure out how to do that. Racism. It impacts education and our children on so many levels. Many African-American children are more likely to be over-identified with special needs and under-identified with others, for example, with autism. They may experience more suspensions and more expulsions. And oftentimes, there are not as many teachers of color, and the cultural perspectives may be missed when we just don't have that experience. Ricky talked about a program that they developed at the Kalamazoo Public Schools on cultural relevance training and how that was really helpful to the teachers in those schools. She also talked about helping children and even her own children understand, what do you know for sure? Do you know something that is true about another person before you make a decision about who they are or how they behave? And then I asked her how pediatricians can best address racism, because it's not really something we can ignore. One of the things that we talked about was assessing for safety in the community and safety at home. You know, are you safe? I know there's been a lot going on in the world. Does your neighborhood, your community feel like a safe place based on the color of your skin? Have you been treated differently? And what's that experience like for you? Ricky said yes, we should absolutely be asking this and that it validates the experience. So I want to thank Ricky for her frankness and her insights on the education system and the importance of collaboration between physicians and the schools. Thanks so much for taking your time to listen today. I really appreciate it as always. I know you're super busy and I hope you'll join me next week. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are, and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you, and welcome all feedback, ideas, and suggestions for future episodes. In the words of Maya Angelou, Do the best you can until you know better. Then, when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.